Well, uh, thank you very much to uh, John. It was nice to read out those endorsements from my parents on the back of the book there. Uh, and to Olivia LeBlanc at uh, CUP, the festival, festival organizers, thank you very much for coming. Um, so my book starts with the following sentence. Uh, there are two main ways of approaching the study of revolution in the contemporary world, and they're both wrong. Now, I want to start by explaining what I mean by that. On the one hand, there's this notion that revolution is everywhere. You find it on the streets of Hong Kong, of Beirut, in Santiago, in Kobani, in uh, Algeria and Sudan earlier this year, amidst the Naxalites of central and eastern India, now the world's longest running armed uprising, in the rhetoric of groups like Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion, in the campaigns of Bernie Sanders, and amongst some Brexiteers. It's completely accidental that the Naxalites are pointing their guns at the Brexiteers, I can assure you. But the point here is that rarely does a week go by at the moment without a revolution of one kind or another being proclaimed. And it's not just about political movements, it's something that's crossed over into popular culture. So the highly popular musical Hamilton, the, ever, the even more popular Star Wars series have eulogized revolutionary struggle. Now, something I do when I travel is I check out how revolution works in different domain names around the world. So I've got three examples here, but it's a game you are welcome to play when you travel as well. So revolution.com is the American version, and there revolution.com is a venture capitalist firm. Revolution.co.uk is a gaming company, a software company. And my favorite one, which is from Australia, where I spent some time last year, revolution.com.au is a flea and heartworm treatment for your dogs and cats. Now, I don't know who came up with that, but I think it helps make the point that revolution has seeped through into everyday life in a way that's fairly confusing if we're trying to think about uh, what this term actually means in the contemporary world. So the first position I think we have to contend with is this notion that revolution is everywhere, as popular movement, as political statement, as popular culture, and apparently as pet treatment. So that's one. The other position, I think, is, is the opposite, the apparently contradictory belief that revolution is nowhere. So with the passing of state socialism at the end of the Cold War between 1989 and 1991, there was the sense that the big issues of governance and economic development had largely been settled. That that idea of revolution, big R, capital, social revolution, as programs of deep confrontation, systemic transformation, and world order making had largely gone. And they were being replaced by a different idea of revolutions, maybe smaller revolutions, minor disturbances, rather than deep challenge, pale imitations, rather than these real, proper, authentic, what were once called social revolutions. So in that sense, revolution is nowhere. And the question I wanted to start with tonight, and I start the book with is, is revolution everywhere or nowhere? And the answer, of course, is neither. So uh, what I do uh, in the book is really start with this core idea, that revolutions are processes that change in form across time and place. Now, because they do, that's something captured to some extent by that revolutions are everywhere idea, because what people are getting at here is the fragmentation of revolution in the contemporary world, that we seem to be using it to capture a very wide variety of processes. But I think that meaning, that understanding, is too loose. 
On the other hand, the people who are thinking about revolution in nowhere have effectively fixed an idea of revolution, that unless it looks like France, Russia, China, or Cuba, or a couple of others, it's not really a revolution, therefore revolution belongs to the past. And I think the problem there is that that view is effectively too complacent. They don't see the enduring attempt to overturn existing injustices and generate alternative social orders. So what I try and do, and what I'll try and outline tonight, is think about Keep those both views in mind. Try and think about this notion of revolution changing uh, across time and place. Make some remarks about how we might think about revolution in the contemporary world. But spend some time thinking about, if we take a longer view of revolutions, how uh, might we draw some patterns about how they emerge, how they unfold, and how they end. So the starting point then, if we're thinking about the changing components of revolution, what are we looking for? We're looking for changing meanings. So once upon a time in Europe, revolution meant something circular, almost like the passing of seasons that just happened organically. And sometime in the late 18th century, that shifted to a notion of revolution as rupture, a sharp break, as a year zero from which there was no going back. And it might be that revolution is changing again in meaning in the contemporary world, and I'll come back to that. We have this idea that revolutions also change in character. Once upon a time, we associated them with vanguard parties or guerrilla movements, but certainly some armed struggle of some kind or another. And now we actually think of revolutions primarily as unarmed movement, people power, mass movements, the occupation of uh, public places, and their, their reassessment and reconfiguration is something that belongs to the people rather than the regime. And again, I'll come back to that. The main actors in revolutions have changed. Once upon a time, we thought of the urban proletariat or maybe the third world guerrilla. And now again, we have these huge coalitions that occupy public places, take a huge part in huge demonstrations, take part in concerted, unarmed struggle. So we've got different ideas of what revolutions look like. And that means that the people who singularize revolution as this big capital R revolution, as France and Russia and China and Cuba and so on, I think are making three mistakes. The first is that the stories we tell about revolutions are often more myth than reality. I've always thought it was fairly odd that the practice in social science of revolution begins with France, a revolution that's usurped by Napoleon and then partly overturned by the Bourbons in 1815. More myth than reality, and not just France, plenty of other revolutions as well. So we don't necessarily get the story right. Second, I think we've spent too much time on self-proclaimed progressive movements. The Republican constitutionalist movements that dominated revolution in the 18th century, the state socialist movements of the 19th century, various post-colonial movements. And what we've missed are these radical conservative currents, from fascism to militant Salafism today, that actually look and smell a lot like revolutions, but are excluded because we often just don't like them. But that's a normative position. That's a political position. It's not a scholarly one. And I think we're missing a lot if we don't think about what people are attracted to in those movements, what they're fighting for, and what they'd like to do if they win. And again, I'll come back to that at the end of the talk. Finally, we've concentrated too much on outcomes. Almost every definition of revolution is about big change, major transformations. Now, if that's right, then by definition, you only ever look at successful cases, which you know sometime down the line, five years after, 10 years after, 30 years after, even if it's more myth than reality. We premise our study of revolutions on really a handful of cases, 10, 11, 12 very well-known cases that effectively are on a kind of repeat cycle. The problem there is that we're missing this whole world of revolutionary stuff 
which I think is the technical term, uh, for all of these revolutionary movements that often don't generate a revolutionary situation, and then lots of revolutionary situations that don't end up as successful revolutions. So we've missed all of that because we've only concentrated on the last bit, those that we think have had successful outcomes sometime after the fact, some big enough transformation that we say, now you're a revolution. So we've missed out on all of these diverse revolutionary experiences, historical and contemporary, by thinking about revolutions as quintessentially progressive, as quintessentially successful, and often by not telling particularly accurate histories of them. So one of the starting points for the book is thinking about, well, if we didn't do that, if we thought about revolutions as this much more diverse set of experiences, attempts to generate these major transformations, fairly quickly, forcefully, and some major social transformation, not necessarily successfully, but an attempt to do so, then we open up our understanding of revolution to a much wider corpus. And as a result, we might also spend some time explaining why we have, we have so many movements that don't win. Why do we have relatively few successes given that there's so much revolutionary stuff around us? And one of the reasons for that is because of successful counter-revolution by actors both in states and then sometimes outside states. And how could you tell the story of the Arab uprisings in 2011 without the role of Saudi Arabia as a primarily counter-revolutionary force, often acting through the Gulf Cooperation Council, acting to push back revolution in various states, spending a lot of money, sending arms, uh, and all the rest of it. So we often miss a study of counter-revolution and fail to explain why lots of these movements are unsuccessful. So what I thought I'd do is sort of open things up a bit, think about these diverse experiences, try not to just concentrate on successful or progressive movements, and then from there, see what lessons could be drawn about how revolutions begin, what happens during them, and what happens afterwards. So let's begin at the beginning with how revolutions come about. This is the more or less standard way of thinking about revolutions. The thing to hold on to here is the notion that there is more than one political entity or political group in a society that's claiming the state. So it's a position of dual, or if you have more than two, multiple sovereignty. These are exclusive claims. You can't agree to different parts. You can't agree to a partition. These are exclusive claims to the same political unit. And there's some forceful, uh, transgressive, extra-constitutional activity on both sides that are effectively duking it out. And you'll see here that there's a very close relationship between revolution and civil war. It's actually quite difficult, I think, to tell them apart. Think about Syria. Since 2011, it starts as a revolution and becomes a civil war, but I'm not completely clear when or on what basis. I mean, we might think of that still as a revolutionary, counter-revolutionary struggle, and that might open up uh, something that we otherwise don't see that well. So three reasons, or three patterns, that we find in terms of how one of these revolutionary situations emerges when we get these competing groupings. The first is shifting international relations. You find a close link between the emergence of revolutionary situations and big changes going on internationally. So, for example, imperial competition, maybe tied to a weaker empire and a stronger empire or some type of imperial disintegration. That's there in the big Atlantic Age of revolutions the last quarter of the 18th century and the first quarter of the 19th century. The Spanish and the French, the Portuguese empires are becoming weaker, the British empires becoming stronger, and into this imperial, inter-imperial competition comes various movements 
from below, waiting effectively for international relations to become more fluid, to become more open as a way of seizing the moment. Same is also true of the beginning of the 20th century. You have this range of what's called constitutional revolutions as the Russian, Chinese, Ottoman, Persian empires are becoming much weaker. Depending on your view of what the Soviets were, you might say that the 1989 revolutions are associated with the weakening of the Soviet empire from parts of Central and Eastern Europe. You also get a close association between revolutions and war. Uh, so very often you'll get revolutionary expressions either in the midst of wars or afterwards. I mean, the obvious example is the 1917 revolution in Russia, which is very closely associated with a disaster of World War I. It's also true of relatively small wars, as they called in the Third World, that were closely associated with revolutions in Algeria or Vietnam, uh, elsewhere. Then you get this category of client-patron relations, which is really just a way of thinking about a state that's largely dependent on a more powerful backer. So here, the signal case is the, the Soviet system in East and Central Europe, which effectively runs these satellite states. And time and again during the Cold War, the Soviets put down revolutions or at least large uprisings in those states. East Germany, 1953, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968. But what happens during the mid to late 1980s is Mikhail Gorbachev effectively says, we're not doing that anymore. Now it's up to you. You're going to have to stand or fail on your own back. You can't have the Soviet security umbrella behind you. So once you remove, once that client-patron relation shift, that relations of dependence shifts, and those states are left effectively on their own, then again, there's an opening for these movements from below uh, to get somewhere that they couldn't previously. They don't hit the brick wall of the big power effectively putting them in their place. And think about that as a contrast to the protesters in Hong Kong today. You know, as they protest, they're still going to hit the brick wall of China at some point. So if you don't have that opening, I would suggest you don't have much chance of success. If you do have that opening, you've at least got a chance. And there's a very different calculations that's made in some of those states at the time. Mikhail Gorbachev looks actually at Tiananmen Square. That happens on I think, the 4th of June. 1989, and says, well, we can't defend socialism by the barrel of the gun anymore. That won't work. And actually, Eric Honig, who's the general secretary of the, uh, in GDR and uh, Democratic Republic of Germany, actually takes the opposite view. You might now think of it as the kind of a sad position. It says, well, actually, we need to shoot everyone, because otherwise we're going to lose, and it looks like the Chinese are doing okay. And you know, they both think that's their only chance of survival. And in some senses, they're probably both right. But it's interesting there that Gorbachev effectively contains uh, the desire by Honecker and others to actually fire and use their coercive power. So international stuff is the sort of crucible within which these movements have the chance uh, to bubble up and get somewhere they hadn't previously. The second uh, point here is about a regime type. Particular regimes are more vulnerable than others. So the regimes that are really vulnerable are effectively these personalistic regimes like Nicholas II or Louis XVI or Somoza in Nicaragua or the Shah in Iran or Philippines uh, with Marcos and so on, which effectively are single entity states. They're really down to that individual and then the personalistic network, the coterie, the family often around them. And the basic reason why these states are so vulnerable is that notion that l'état c'est moi, right? If the states meet, then that's fine when things are going well, it's on you but it's also on you if things are going badly and you have nowhere else to go with that. So they're likely to intensify protest around this figure 
of the individual. At the same time, because those states are effectively cut off from their society, they're sort of suspended above society, then they don't have these intermediary institutions or associations that can uh, sort of sustain uh, uh, some form of negotiation with forms of dissent as it arises. You don't have a means of, of negotiating your way out of problems. You don't have a way of channeling dissent. You don't have a way of meeting grievances. So there you effectively turn all moderates into radicals because there's no way for a relatively ordinary non-transgressive protest to be dealt with before it gets to the individual at the top. So you intensify protest and you make even relatively normal protest more existential or at least more radical. Now the contrast here is with democracies. I mean, my basic position would be there are no revolutions in democracies. It's the other side of this position. Sorry for those who are who've come to find out how to do that, um, unless they degenerate markedly, like the Weimar Republic, or unless they become much more personalistic, i.e. Trump-like, but a lot more personalistic uh, than Donald Trump is currently able to get away with. I'm sure he'd love to be uh, even more so, but at the moment he's being contained relatively successfully. Because what democracies do is they find a way to decompress revolutionary sentiment. It's not that people don't have uh, grievances in democracies, but they have channels through which they're expressed and are considered to be legitimate. And quite quickly, you step outside the bounds of legitimacy. Something becomes violent, it becomes extra constitutional, and usually democratic publics don't find that a reasonable thing to do. They usually stop at that, but look, we have the right to protest and to elect and to petition and do all sorts of things. You meet your MP. It's not reasonable then to become uh, as transgressive as revolutionary movements effectively need to be. And then a lesson there for the contemporary world is actually there's a lot of people who are not just personalistic but becoming more so. And it looks like sometimes from afar that they're making themselves seem more secure. But actually in many ways they're making themselves more vulnerable and more insecure. I'm thinking here of Putin or Xi Jinping or Maduro uh, or Duterte, whoever it might be. So there's a vulnerability with these personalistic regimes, and as regimes become more personalistic in the contemporary world, we may well find, again, this opening to revolutionary currents from below. Final point, then, which is the most obvious one, is you just need a sense of crisis. Now, that could be very dramatic, like a defeat in war, so the 1917 example. It could be uh, an economic crisis where the state can no longer provide relatively secure standards of living, or your neighbors might be doing better than you. Or it might actually be relatively small. We've seen recently the Hong Kong protest start over an extradition law, or the Santiago protest start over an increase uh, in metro fares. Uh, we've seen the uh, uprising in uh, Beirut begin because of attacks on WhatsApp calls. So the actual catalyst often is something relatively small, and then it snowballs up into something much bigger. It's a stand-in, effectively, for the reasons that uh, you're so dispossessed, exploited, uh, faced with conditions of indignity, and all the rest of it, fundamental inequality. All right, so that's how revolutions often come about. And one reason why we don't get that many revolutionary situations, even though there are many more revolutionary movements, is because that's quite hard. That's quite a lot of stuff that more or less needs to add up before the movement even has an opportunity. International stuff, particular regimes, and then the sense of systemic crisis. What then happens during revolutions? I think two things I want to highlight. The first and most important is that you've effectively got to break uh, the state's 
hold or claimed hold on the use of physical force, their coercive power. Here's uh, all about the role of both state elites and then also the security services. It's effectively a sort of top-down type of issue that needs to take place. And that could be through guerrilla campaigns or it could be through unarmed programs of civil disobedience. What you do is you break that notion that the state both holds that monopoly and is able to use it. So the older idea was you just confront them head on. People's war, guerrilla campaign, asymmetrical warfare of various kinds, types of terrorism. The new idea is that if you stay unarmed, the state can't really fire on you without looking very bad, without looking extremely illegitimate, particularly as the world is watching now with media that goes all around the world fairly immediately. But there is a kind of veto power here for the coercive apparatus. This is an example of the Carnation Revolution in Portugal in 1974, where there's actually an alliance between radical military officers and uh, popular groups. They place Carnations on tanks. They uh, celebrate with the officers. And that's uh, a way that they actually conduct the revolution uh, to a position of relative success. The other side of that is that point I made earlier. The Hong Kong protesters may do everything right in terms of their protest, but it's very difficult to see how they can win, at least in the short term, while the state remains secure. When you don't get that notion of elite fracture, you don't get the chink in the state, and it looks willing to use its repressive capacities, one way or the other, whether that's the Hong Kong authorities or uh, the PLA and various Chinese uh, officials lurking behind. Second dimension of this is how do you generate your coherent revolutionary movement? And the problem you've got is that you know, societies are diverse peoples with lots of different rationales and lots of different reasons for joining a protest movement. It might be because they don't get enough to eat. It might be because they think something's really unjust. It may be uh, for a whole load of reasons. So how do you generate a coherent movement from this wide array of people? This is particularly true in the contemporary world, when you have these enormous coalitions of people. You know, there was at the time when 25% of the Hong Kong public were protesting against the, uh, against the leaders there. I mean, that's far higher. I mean, Iran previously was probably the highest, around 10%. But you go back to France and Russia and so on, it's like 1% or 2% of the population. I mean, they're committed, but it ain't a majority. It's a long way away from a majority. So at one point, it made sense to have a committed band of guerrillas or a vanguard party that could lead these movements, seize power, and then institute the revolutionary program. It's a bit harder in these mass, unarmed, huge coalitions of sometimes millions of people. How do you generate coherence? Well, you do so in a couple of different ways. You occupy public places, for example. This is the main square in Kiev during the Euromaidan Revolution of Dignity protest towards the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2014. You chant, you have slogans, notion that people have heard in Hong Kong of be water, be adaptable but strong, something that they've used to, to construct their sense of collective identity. What you do always is have music to the cent at the center of a revolutionary coalition. If you think about how do you generate a collective identity, then music is central. You can't have a revolution without music. It's impossible. You might have very different types of revolution, but you need music. Sometimes it might be chanting, but sometimes it might be the appropriation of particular songs. Again, sorry, thinking of Hong Kong, so lots of my examples are from Hong Kong, but they've constructed this effectively a new national anthem for Hong Kong that's now emerged out of the protest movement and people sing everywhere. And what does that do? It overcomes fear, it sort of channels anger, 
It helps to sustain hope. All of those positive emotions, rather than emotions that make you fearful or might make you want to go back home, it gives you strength in numbers, gives you that sense of collective identity. I think the key point here is that I think social technologies of this kind or symbolic technologies of this kind are actually much more important than physical technology. We spend lots of time thinking about, for example, the role of social media in, in being necessary for spreading revolutionary movements. And revolutionary movements have always found a way to spread their messages. Once upon a time, it was by ship, then it might have been by railway, it's often by word of mouth, could even be how fast someone could run. In Iran, it was tape cassettes. They used to get uh, tape cassettes of Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, sermons and play them out over loudspeakers at the end of Friday prayers. So you always find a way of spreading the message. The physical technology, to me, doesn't matter very much. But the social technology does. You always need these forms of chanting, of music, of collective identity, of colors, of strikes, of demonstrations, of occupations. They always uh, are there in every type of revolutionary struggle. And they do two different things. One is you generate that sense of we feeling, a kind of affective we, a collective entity. We the people, rather than I, or just a particular group. You know, a particular revolutionary group over here and a particular revolutionary group over there, but they disagree on everything. Well, how do you get them together? You get them together through these forms of collective identity, even if it's only temporary. The second thing you do once you have this notion of we the people is you separate the people from the regime. That's why you occupy public places. You say, this is our square. It's not your square. This is our public building, not your public building. So you do two different things. You, you generate a notion of we the people, and you separate the people from the regime in its castles, and its palaces, you know, off on its hills, somewhere else. But the people occupy these places. It's them that are conducting the revolution. So two things then in terms of trajectory. this coercive dimension and then the popular uprising. And we spend a lot of time on the popular uprising part, and it's important but I do think we need to put it within uh, these various other dimensions as well if we want to make sense of how revolutionary events unfold. Finally, what happens next? I think revolutionary outcomes, uh, we can talk about them ending in a couple of different ways. One is effectively in the short term, just when you're relatively secure from power. So this, in the case of the Bolshevik Revolution, is probably at the end of the Civil War, when you win the Civil War and you think, okay, well now, you're relatively secure, how do you start generating your program of transformation? That's a sort of minimal condition. Then a more maximal condition is what happens once you actually start transforming stuff. So you might want to wait a way down the line, sometimes even a generation after the revolution to say, well, how much has changed here? Have we got a new constitution, a new legal code, a new system of education? Have we transformed gender relations? Have we got new international alliances? You know, to what extent is this now a revolutionary state in that everyday sense? of major transformation. As you can see, it's happening here at the end of my story rather than being the story that we effectively start with and then cuts us off from seeing lots of other things. So again, the key point here is that we combine attention to institutional transformations, new constitutions, new legislative environments, major new programs of welfare. Once upon a time, it would have been nationalization programs. These days, it's much more likely to be liberalization programs. You think of shock therapy in the 1990s to the East and Central European states. But either way, massive changes to people's everyday lives. But there's also symbolic transformations as well. And one example I wanted to give you, partly because we're not a million miles away from this time of year and partly because you've been listening for a while, so I thought I might wake you up a little bit if I put a Lego picture of Father Christmas up there. 
is that there's actually a shift in symbolic transformations as well. So the Cubans ban Father Christmas. He's an illegal capitalist alien. He's not authentic to Cuba. He's not authentic to the revolution. So instead, they generate this figure of Don Feliciano. He's got his Guayabera shirt. Uh, he's got his uh, fundamental revolutionary beard. And I couldn't find a very good picture of Don Feliciano, so I did Fidel instead because he's got the beard, which is compulsory. Fidel had a baseball team called Los Barbudos, the bearded ones, which all the revolutionaries had to join. Uh, so uh, you've got the Guayabera shirt. You've got the revolutionary beard. You don't have the revolutionary cigar, but that probably wasn't very far away. You've got the original champagne socialism here. Uh, in terms of what he's drinking, but you get the point that the symbolic stuff actually matters here. New festivals. I mean, the French, of course, try and remake the days of the week, the months of the year. You actually start history from time again. You have festivals. You might secularize, or try to. You don't make people you know, not Catholic overnight, as I'm sure some people know, or, or not. Uh, uh, you can't change people's religion very easily, but that doesn't stop people trying. So not everything changes. There's often big variation in revolution. Uh, to this extent, but don't forget this dimension of symbolic transformation. It's actually one of the hardest things to do. How do you get people thinking anew, afresh, to stop thinking in their old ways and start thinking anew? So what are these symbolic dimensions as well as the institutional transformations we often focus on? Second is the more international dimension. Lots of revolutionary states try and export their revolution, and they do so because they feel vulnerable. They often have domestic enemies, counter-revolutionaries at home. They feel that the environment that they're in is often hostile, and they also feel like they have a message to spread. They want to proselytize the vision. It's not about just being Cuban, the revolution, or French, or Chinese. They actually want to spread this revolution further afield to other people who can benefit from the revolutionary message. So revolutionary states are both twice as likely as non-revolutionary states to induce interstate war, and they're also much more likely to win them. I don't know exactly why they're more likely to win them. It might be because of the intensity of the commitment. It also might be because they just spend more money on military force, which they almost all do. Not the recent model from 89 on, uh, but certainly the model uh, that we saw before then. So there's often a bit more continuity between the old and the new than we sometimes think. They often have to keep on the army, or at least large parts of the army. They get rid of some generals, but not the rank and file. You still need police the day after the revolution. You probably need quite a lot of them, in fact. You need teachers. You need civil servants. You still need local officials. So there's a degree more con continuity than we think in terms of these institutions. But nevertheless, there is this ongoing attempt to radicalize the message and spread it abroad. And the obvious example here is Cuba. So during the 1960s, Cuba provides military assistance to, to revolutionary groups in virtually every Latin American country. In the 1970s, they turn their attention to Africa. 12,000 troops go to Ethiopia in 1974. The more remarkable number, 50,000 Cuban troops go to Angola in a mission that, that lasts for a decade. I mean, it's extraordinary if you think about it. It's a far higher percentage of troops going abroad than the Soviets ever did, particularly to places like Africa where the Cubans are not racist, unlike very large uh, elements of the Soviet elite. So it's not a question of whether the objective conditions are ripe. It's a question of, let's make revolution now. And these characters will do. So in the 1980s, they support revolutionary groups in Nicaragua and El Salvador. In the 90s, and then the early part of this century, they provide lots of assistance to Hugo Chavez, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution. This is actually a march in Caracas. You can see Chavez and Fidel side by side, and Che 
in the foreground there. It's one reason they're loath to give up Maduro today. There's a long-standing commitment uh, to revolutionary currents uh, in Venezuela and in uh, the continent more generally. But it's not just about armed export. It's also about spreading the message through teachers or professionals or health uh, professionals, engineers, or whatever it might be. So Cuba has had this internationalism that's seen it provide, often free of charge, or at least of very good terms, or some reciprocal arrangement, professionals of various kinds all around the global south. It often uh, funds uh, students from the global south to universities in Cuba, again, free or on some type of reciprocal arrangement. So that's not about spreading your revolution by force of arms. It's about spreading it through your good deeds, through the proselytizing virtues of your internationalism. So we have this idea of direct export. We also have some more indirect ideas of emulation and spread. And the final point I'll say here is it's worth remembering that the outcomes of revolution don't stop. You know, the revolutionary state maintains its notion of revolution in the period after the immediate seizure of power. And that's one reason that we get ongoing contestation within those states. Think about Iran in 1979 and then dealing with the, the Green Uprising in 2009. Ukraine has effectively been one long contentious episode from the Orange Revolution more or less to now. Tunisia and Egypt are still contentious places even though the revolutionaries there won in 2011. And that's partly because the revolution, once you unlock this idea that you can contest power and that that's some way, viable way of meeting grievances, it's quite hard to put people back at home in front of their te tellies, being docile, being well-behaved, accepting that their lives aren't very good and they should just get on with it. So once you let the genie of revolution out of the bottle, once you let this contestation spread, particularly in cases where it looks like people have won first time around, then often you have this ongoing revolution in the revolution, sort of constant radicalization, this constant contestation, sometimes low intensity, sometimes fairly high octane. So those are the patterns you can see from the outcomes. What I thought I'd do is now is just conclude uh, in two ways. One is talk a little bit about what I think this adds up to and then just say a couple of things about where we are today and then I'll uh, open things up. So the point of the book is to try and draw out what I call these patterns in history. What I'm trying to do is get away from the notion there's this kind of identikit revolution or, you know, a sort of microwave ready meal revolution that, you know, you have your French model and your Chinese model and all the rest of it. You get it off the shelf, chuck it in the microwave, and out you come and you eat it and there's your revolution. It doesn't work like that. Revolutionaries adapt. Revolutionary processes adapt. But that doesn't mean we can't find these similarities. When we open up our imagination, when we have a look historically at lots of cases of revolution through world history, then we find that there are these shared patterns, these shared forms, not uniform structures, but shared patterns. And there are three dimensions to this picture I wanted to show you when I add that one. And the first is the very well-known uh, Eugene Delacroix uh, picture of the 1830 July Revolution in France. You've got your personification of liberty, you know, Marianne, resplendent bourgeois patriarchal mode with her flag and musket and all the rest of it. You've got a protester from the Gezi protest in 2013 in Istanbul, quite similar type of portrayal. And then a character who's protesting uh, in Palestine in October last year. And I think the sort of shared resemblances, they're not identical pictures, but there are shared forms, shared uh, symbolic script, shared ideas, shared 
patterns that I think we can find in this picture, which stands in for what I'm trying to do uh, in a bigger way. There's one postscript, actually, to, to the picture on the bottom right. This character, Aidabu Amro, was actually shot the next month by Israeli security forces. He thinks they targeted him because his picture became quite widespread. It wasn't fatal, but an interesting reminder of the centrality of coercive uh, pressures and the role of security services to how revolutions unwind. So that's the big picture. What I wanted to do then is just end with, with where we are today and highlight two strands of revolution in the contemporary world. So going back to this notion that there seems to be a lot of revolutionary stuff around, can we draw out a couple of different themes or patterns? And I think we can. I think there are two main strands of revolution that we're seeing. The first is this model that we mostly associate with 1989 and lots of big unarmed uh, mass uh, protests since then, and we probably include Hong Kong in this, at least I would, that are plural, horizontalist, egalitarian, decentralized, are deliberative in many ways. And the second one is familiar in some ways, the more Bolshevik model, if you like, much more vertical, much more premised around uh, violence, much more hierarchical in terms of its organizational structure, but actually oriented around self-declared non-progressive movements. There's that point I made about not blinkering us or blinding us to the uh, important ways in which these types of movements, from militant Salafism to types of populism to the transnational right, are trying to conduct something that looks, to me at least, a lot like revolutionary programs. So very quickly, what about these two models? And I won't spend any time on this because they're probably familiar and I want to leave some time for uh, having a chat. But the idea, I think, behind this first one, what are they complaining about? What's the common theme? It's largely about uh, inequality. There's a reason that it's emerged, uh, particularly over the last 10 years or so, since the financial crisis and the Great Recession that's followed. And I think, for me, the, the stat there that really stands out is that Britain's had its longest period of relative decline and in real income since records began, which is in 1815, which is really remarkable, if you think about it. For me, the most, most remarkable thing there is, if that's right, I'm surprised that Brexit is the only sort of revolutionary spasm that there's been in this country. You'd almost expect there to have been more. And it's not just what's going on in the West, it's also something that's happening globally. We'll again all know the figures about global inequality. So pick your favorite stat effectively. And I think the big picture here is that in lots of places in the world over particularly the last 10 years, if you imagine the world as a kind of apartment block, the penthouses at the top are bigger and plusher than they've ever been before. You know, they've people got helicopter pads, you know, into their private jacuzzis where they're drinking Krug, and they're carrying on uh, like you wouldn't believe. Then in the middle of your apartment block, you know, the middle class is feeling a bit squeezed. There's this notion of the middle class poor, right? Job insecurity is a bit down. Real incomes uh, are either down or stagnant, certainly haven't increased. Uh, you might sort of renovate your flat a bit or brush it up a bit, but you probably can't move on uh, to anything bigger and better like you thought uh, you would. At the bottom of our building, the basement's effectively been flooded, and no one's coming to fix it. But the real kicker is that the lift between the floors in our apartment block is broken. Social mobility is down everywhere. Now, that promise of going up our apartment block to the top is effectively what I think has happened over the last 10 or 15 years. 
And the way that these sort of social movement come revolutionary movements deal with this, like Occupy, is say, okay, well, let's get, let's get us together, let's align the middle class poor and this precariat that's flooded and no hope of social mobility and working for jobs and no hope of things getting any better. Let's align ourselves against the 1% and take back power. Particularly, let's reestablish democracy at the level of a square or a camp. Let's, let's rejuvenate democratic practices against corporate control and against the 1%. It's a re-energizing of democracy against a particular type of elite. I think that's the movement you can associate with Occupy and Podemos and Syriza and various other movements along those lines. And I think at least partially at least the movement in Hong Kong and Santiago and elsewhere. The second strand is a little bit different, and I'm, there's a lot of license here in putting together militant Salafism, populists uh, of various kinds, and this transnational right. But I think there is something to be said for the similarities in their analysis, in their organization, in their form of legitimation, and so on. And when I just say, this is going to be the closing point, is that these characters are not to be underestimated. And maybe seeing them as revolutionary will start to seal the scale of the projects that are going on. On the one hand, one of the interesting things about populists and the new right is that they share lots of the critique of corporate control, of the 1%, and so on. But they align that often to a claim about culture and about race rather than about democracy. So they re-embed a different type of politics from more or less the same place of critique. And it's a toxic blend that in some places at least seems to be working, particularly the further away you actually go from the Anglo-American experience. When it comes to militant Salafism, there's a real corrective that needs to take place. Even though ISIS is kind of defeated immediately, its ideas aren't defeated. And it seems to me unlikely that it won't reappear when opportunity arises. Remember, international opening, particular types of illegitimate states. Perfect example is Syria right now. You know, what do we think is going to happen? Or if Jordan went up in smoke, whatever it might be. So ISIS is around. It's partly relocating. It's partly waiting. It's obviously moved a little bit, some of its affiliates at least, down to the Sahel, that huge area in Africa between the northern deserts and the tropical savannah from southern Algeria to northern uh, Nigeria. So there's a way there, I think, that these right-wing movements are in many ways speaking to a very important current of revolution in the contemporary world. If we're in this moment, which I think we are, of global turbulence, then what I think we'll see is that we're in a time that's also going to be extremely revolutionary, and both of these strands are going to be alive over the next few years and tell us a lot about how politics in various places develops. Thanks a lot. That's very good. All right, that was closer to 40 minutes than 35, but still ballpark okay. It's about a quarter of an hour left if people would like to discuss things or talk about things. There's a, there's a mic coming around, so there's someone down here, please. So I, 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 I like the idea that um, democracy sort of inoculates yeah. a regime against revolution. But that's, that makes me want to unpack the definition of democracy. So if democracy is about... Um, the people feeling that they have voice and influence. When, if, if, so that should work then. But in democracies where, which are effectively deadlocked, and I'm thinking Democrats, Republicans in the States, election after election, yeah. it's, it's a tie. 
and it's very difficult for either side to get the thing done. And the same goes for Brexit. It's almost a tie. Neither side really has any political um, legitimacy in saying, I'm, I won. And we're seeing it with UK elections, general elections as well, um, ties. So is that really democracy? Uh, is that sufficient inoculation against revolution? Thank you. I think so. I think, interestingly enough, in Britain and the US, what I'd say is that they've both had stress tests on their democracies, and so far the democracy's holding. Even in, as you're saying, extremely tough conditions where you don't just have ties, but you have extremely polarized society. So that dual, you think if revolutions are about two antagonistic blocks, then you've got them. But I think what's actually containing it in many ways are democratic institutions and democratic culture. So you think about the US, you've got a Congress that's uh, to some extent a check and balance. You've got courts that are a check and balance. You've got individual states. Trump would like to close down the New York Times, but he hasn't managed to. And one of the interesting unintended consequences is actually a mobilization of civil society. There's actually groups of people who are now coming out and protesting in very large scales, very consistently, and often very imaginative ways that weren't there five or 10 years ago and wouldn't be there necessarily under, any, under other circumstances. So in some ways, you've got a sort of vibrancy that's come out of this. And I think there's a similarity, although the form of democratic institutions works very differently in Britain than the US, you could almost tell the same story. And one thing that I think is interesting in both cases as well is how there's the emergence of new amalgams of ideas in both places that are bubbling under the surface from both left and right. So we talked a little bit about the right version, but the left version about the Green New Deal, you know, universal basic income, four-day working weeks, you know, what a new left will look like. At the moment, it's been carried often by the generation before, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. But actually, what's bubbling underneath is something really quite radical. So I think the comparison would be with the 60s, right, I think. And we did have 68, which was a near thing uh, in some places, uh, particularly uh, not necessarily Britain, but certainly France. So it may be that that's where we are now, polarized societies, effectively working in ties, but to me at least at the moment contained within these democratic institutions and with democratic debate with actually new ideas about actually rejuvenating democracy effectively bubbling up from below. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned just sort of coming from that question yeah. uh, that there is this social mobility and that there is, sorry, this mobilization of society and that there are these sort of popular pluralist democratic movements uh, that sort of justify your argument that there is no space for sort of violent actions or violent revolutionary actions in democracy. But the two you mentioned most were Brexit and the Occupy Wall Street movement, both of which in their own rights and perspectives failed. The Occupy Wall Street movement has seen almost no sort of uh, genuine change to the banking uh, system in America, uh, and more importantly, it hasn't done anything to dissuade or uh, negate the power of money in American politics. And to take the Brexit argument, the thing that we're being told now is that nothing really is going to change and that for most people, life will largely go on as it has. And so my argument is that if the basement is flooded and the middle classes on the second floor are being squeezed, and yet the sort of organs of power are so reliant on such a small number of incredibly wealthy people in these so-called democracies, have you not inadvertently, sort of contrary to what you said at the beginning, justified violent political action in democracies? No, I hope not, at least not on camera. Um, I mean, I think there's two things to say there, right? Which is one is that most 
revolutionary movements or protest movements fail? It depends a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I always find this question quite hard. Can you think of a successful revolution? I mean, that succeeded on its own terms and set out what it, I mean, it wouldn't be France, right? And it can't be the Soviet Union, can it? Post-Stalin. So, I mean, which is it? Which is our successful revolution? Is Iran successful? Is America successful? Maybe. Haitian is actually a very good example. Although it became new structures of oppression and all the rest of it afterwards, but that, that is a good example. So there may be some, but there aren't many. Most fail if we have a really, if we have a bar of what it is you set out you were going to do and how, to what extent did you succeed. So in some senses, failure is the norm. The question then is what do you do with failure? Now give me an example of, um, we did a talk on the book on Tuesday and there was someone from the Hong Kong movement there who said, and I made that point that I think you're going to lose, and they said, we know we're going to lose. We're not idiots, but we're still going to do it anyway. And it reminded me that that dimension of sacrifice, I stand because I can do no other, regardless of the likelihood of my own sacrifice, even to death, I stand here anyway. And it might not be for me, it might be for my children, it might be down the line. Think of the 1848 springtime of nation in Europe. All failed, but democratization happened down the line in different ways. So there are lots of different consequences of revolution. Sometimes they're indirect. You know, who starts in introducing social insurance schemes in Europe? It's Bismarck. Not because he's a revolutionary, but because he doesn't want to be swept away by revolution. So you get this sort of balance between success, failure, reform, revolution. Revolution becomes this kind of undercurrent, a sort of grammar, and there's lots of different reactions around it. So in Hong Kong, they've succeeded by not yet being defeated. That was always Mao's position. I don't have to win, I just have to not lose. That's what asymmetrical warfare or revolutionary struggle is all around. So that's number one. Number two, I think the point about violence is really interesting. I mean, Catalans, Beirut, and Santiago, they've gone quite quickly towards some type of violent confrontation. Now, the concept of violence here is really thorny. So are they taking up arms or are they throwing bombs? Usually not. Are they arming themselves with weapons that can harm people? Yes. Are they defending themselves? Yes. No, in Egypt in 2011, thousands of police stations were burnt down. So there were sort of militias that were willing to at least defend the people and possibly take up armed struggle. Sometimes, by the way, they use football hooligans who are perfectly willing to take on the police and were used to doing so. So there seems to be a current in revolution more generally, regardless of what I'm saying, that is quicker now to move towards violence for exactly your type of argument. We've tried all this peaceful stuff. We've tried all these mass demonstrations. It didn't work. Now, I'd be cautious about what it means to not work, but I do think this relationship between violence, non-violence, armed, unarmed, is actually much more fluid than we think, and it's certainly a live debate in protest movements at the moment. We've had two men, so can we definitely get a woman next? Thank you. Two women there. Great. Thanks. Um, thanks for the diversity inclusion. Um, other than your last remark, you haven't mentioned very much about leaders at all. Um, so I was wondering, where do you think leaders sit in modern revolutions? I'd say Hong Kong has been fairly leaderless. I'd say the Arab Spring has been leaderless. Do you think a more democratic revolution means fewer need for leaders? Like we haven't had a Mazzini or a Robespierre for, I'd say, quite a long time. So what do you think the trend is there, and do you think that will change in future? I think it's moving in both different directions. So strand one is leaderless. That's one of the whole ideas. Is And you do it if you're Hong Kong for tactical reasons. Um, because you say, look, last time in 2014, all our leaders were locked up, therefore we'll go leaderless this time. And sometimes you do it because you've got an ideological commitment to, to leaderlessness. You know, we don't want to be led in, we don't want to repeat that sort of tyrannical, hierarchical 
vanguard model. We want to disperse power around and be deliberative about it. I'm interested that a lot of people who came out of the Occupy movement have actually said, you know what, we should have had a few more decisions and a few more leaders. You know, we needed to do something when we actually had to act quickly when they came to disperse us, for example. It wasn't time to take soundings from everyone. You needed some type of, of program. So I, I think people go back and forth about it. I would have said to you several years ago that leaderlessness was, was the norm. I now think within those movements themselves, there's a real debate about can you have a sort of temporary leadership structure that's still democratic and maybe temporary but can make decisions uh, I nearly said as a kind of Politburo, relatively quickly, at least as a sort of temporary committee that can make decisions. On the other side, that right-wing version is straightforwardly leaderful. You know, it's all about the personification of the leader and what they can do as a kind of virtuous, in their world, a symbol of the revolutionary project. So I think the two movements vary, and I think within that there's also variation. And then we'll come there. Maybe those are the last two... Keep going if you want, John. Hello. I was lucky to grow up around the world in a family of a very revolutionary father. Would have loved your talk. Oh, you. We lived in Chile during the coup. I was a child then, but martial law was introduced. Mm. I went to and heard the singing of the people. Many of the people, uh, martial law was introduced and People were pulled into cars to have their hair shaved. There were so many cases of violence happening there. Mm. And we all know, who've studied history, that it was a, ver a revolution that didn't work, mm. though it should have worked. And uh, so many people are children of, rev of that revolution, and they've fled countries like my own, mm. Sweden. And they live in so many different cultures and countries, contributing mm. in many ways. There's a song by a Chilean, thanks to the life I was given. Mm. And uh, also a revolution, what you say about music mm. being important. Mm. Uh, in Chile, there is a song mm. that the people are together and will never be separated. Mm. There, uh, it was very simple. Thank, Thank you. Tonight. Thanks a lot. Um, actually, there's a chapter on Chile in the book, so <laughs> good reason to, to read it. Why don't we take that I last one? I love Le Miserable. Okay? It's such yeah. a good musical, and the music as well. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, the, the people from Hamilton knew what they were talking about. They definitely got that bit right. Thanks. Hi, thank you so much again for the talk. Um, I just wanted to ask about the sort of chronology yeah. that you chose for this talk, because in the description it said that it was sort of from the French Revolution yeah. to revolutions today. And I just wanted to ask how you would explain the sort of lack, the relative absences of revolutions before the 18th century. Because mm -hmm. it seems that many of the conditions that you were describing mm. before these sort of revolutionary uh, conditions were more than present before the 18th century of this sort of you know yeah. crises of a very uh, person focused uh, state or yeah. rule um, so that's my question yeah um, the book actually starts with England which I think is the sort of first modern revolution where you start seeing these patterns so in the mid 17th century some people go back to the Dutch Republic uh, in the late 16th century. For me, the problem you've got if you go back much further is that you're dealing with a, just a very different understanding of revolution, that sort of circular notion of revolution that somehow just you sort of work your way through these various cycles 
of political order at some point. But something really does shift with the notion of revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, that notion of rupture, the notion that people actually make it. We don't have a category of revolutionary until the late 18th century, someone who's actually going to make the revolution. It's not going to be just the movement of stars, a sort of uh, celestial uh, type of process or something that's circular. Uh, it's actually something that's going to be made, and we can make it now, and we're going to change the world, and it's going to be year zero, and we're going to change the months of the, the year and the days of the week and the metric system and everything else. So I don't think you can bend the, revolution, the, the concept of revolution any further than that before you're talking about something else, rebellion, revolts, Lots of different ways that you might think about it. I mean, you know, something like the peasant revolt is, I think, different than our understanding of, of modern revolutions. So some people do, if you're interested in that. There's a very good new book by a guy called Saeed, Saeed Arjamand on revolution, effectively everything before I start in the 17th, 18th century. It takes him several thousand pages, I might say. Um, but, you know, it's the Assyrians, and there's lots of different... And I think that's really interesting, but I really don't agree that you're talking about the same thing. I find that comparison just reaches stretching point really by the time you get to the 18th and 17th centuries. So that's when I think you get these particular patterns. Then I think you'd have to classify revolutions in a different way and probably look for different patterns to study whatever you're looking at then. How are we doing, Lucy? We've got to stop? One more. There's this guy here, yeah. Sorry. I saw him first. You were quite dismissive of the idea of technological um, change and developments. And I was wondering, is that just you want to redress the balance of people thinking that social media is a new chimera because when you're talking about the periodization and suggesting yeah. that um you'd make a difference i would argue that one of the reasons why you get this new rupture in the french revolution in 1848 mm. is because of a huge exponential change in speed and obviously you can walk and travel information like that but as soon as you get to the telegraph pole um that is a, a radical change and do you think that actually the point you're trying to make is currently the technological jump hasn't been that far without undermining the fact that actually we may reach a new critical juncture in which material technological change has an impact far bigger than a flag being repeated or a song being... It's, it's about redressing the balance rather than dismissing yeah. kind of thing. Um, I'm trying not to be dismissive, but I take the point. Um, I think you're right. I think my starting point for analysis was that when I started writing the book, which was actually in 2011, during the uprisings, everything I could find was about social media and Twitter. And it just, just doesn't stack up, and I won't talk too much about that, but there's relatively few people using it. You can't find any real discernible effect, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a sort of blessing and curse, and lots of people become interested in revolution again, but they do so with a very particular understanding of, of social media in particular. Uh, so that's, I think, fair as where I'm coming from. The point that I would hold on to, though, is I haven't found many instances where I would say the content of the revolution or the cause that people are mobilizing behind is fundamentally shaped by the type of way that the message spreads. So in your case, in this big Atlantic age of revolution with Haiti and, and France and all the rest of it, it's mainly maritime radicalism, right? It's mainly ships. You know, it's going as fast as people can go, and you get off port, and you talk to someone in a port, and you say, do you know what's going on in Haiti? And you go, oh, we should take that to Jamaica, and it's going that way. So it's the way that the message is spreading. They have pamphlets, right? You know, Thomas Paine, et cetera. There's thousands of copies floating around. So we find ways to spread the message. I haven't seen anything fundamentally change. I mean, some people do think technologies, including revolutionaries, think it fundamentally changes. So the obvious example is Lenin, who thought the print was a particular socialist medium. Everyone reads it together at the same time, and they get the same message, and they go do the revolution, right? Pravda. Um, you know, I don't think it's an accident that 
people like Jay and Fidel you know, are so evocative to us because not only were they on the radio, but they were beginning to become on TV for the first time. So you had these particular images of you know, the revolutionary fatigues and the cigars and all the rest of it. They were at least pictures, photographs, you know, but they were also starting to become much more visual. Then I gave the example of tape cassettes in Iran in 79. We had you know, sort of mass media in 89. I can't see the shape of revolution changing. I can see always people using technology in order to spread the message. But I can't see a really strong claim that says the type of revolution, the type of organization is shifting because of social media. I'm going to give you one easy example, right, from Egypt in February 2011. The regime gets worried that this is all happening because of the internet. So they turn off the internet for five days. And what happens? More people come out on the streets. Because, you know, they actually think, oh, I'd better go, go and find out what's going on now. And five days later, the regime goes, okay, let's, tu let's turn it back on and see if we can get people at home liking stuff. I mean, that's the other sort of more substantive side to it. If you like something, or you've got a sort of weak tie, you know, of sort of acquaintances that are there on some type of social network, that's great for getting a job, it's great for sharing stories, it's great for some type of sociality, but it's not that thick type of sociality, the sociality of struggle, of intensity, of passion, of commitment, including laying your life on the line that you need for a revolutionary struggle. So I actually think the logic of them actually points you in different directions as well. I think we're out of time. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. <laughs>